Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is the podcast where I talk to designers about writing. Today on the show, I am joined by the architecture critic of the Financial Times, Edwin Heathcote. Originally trained as an architect, Edwin was always doing writing on the side, but in 1999, he made the switch to writing full-time, taking this position at the Financial Times, where he has continuously written about design and architecture over the last 20 years. Edwin is also the founder and editor-in-chief of Reading Design, an online library of contemporary and historical texts about design and architecture and urbanism from people like Rem Coolhouse and William Morris and Ada Louise Huxtable and Edgar Allan Poe and Thoreau, a really diverse kind of range of readings uh, that is a great resource for anyone kind of interested in historical design writing. In this conversation, I was really interested in talking to Edwin about both his role at the Times and how he thinks about writing for a general audience and the evolution of architecture criticism over the course of his career, as well as reading design and how spending time with these historical texts that he curates has either changed his own writing or how he thinks about his work and the role of the critic or the role of architecture discourse. This was a a great conversation, I think. I love talking to people who think deeply about their own work and also how their work fits into larger historical and cultural contexts. And it's so clear that Edwin does that. And I was really happy to have him on the show. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive email newsletter that goes out at the beginning of every month and sort of expands on the themes of the podcast, previews upcoming episodes, and shares relevant and interesting links and stories about design and criticism and writing. These memberships help with the ongoing production of the podcast, so if you enjoy the show and want to help out, I'd love for you to become a member. Thank you, as always, for your support, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Edwin Heathcote. Something that I always like to ask people who are critics but uh, come from a kind of design or architecture background, something that I'm always interested in is kind of what came first for you in in your life? Were you interested in architecture first or were you interested in writing and criticism first? Well, I guess there's always a, a kind of yo-yo. So obviously, <laughs> yeah. when you're 10, you can't be that interested in architecture. So you know, when I was 11, I was interested in reading. When I was 18, mm. I was interested in architecture. When I was 20, I was interested in reading and writing. So right. it was reading, writing, architecture. They, they kind of yo-yo in and out of favor. Um, but then I decided to be uh, to study architecture, and I, I always thought I was going to be an architect. So there was a a phase where my reading specialized, I guess you could say. So where did the, I mean, where'd the interest in architecture come from? Um, I suppose it was, um, um, a, it, it, a kind of synthesis of the things I was interested in. So I was interested in, in societal, uh, issues in politics uh, I was interested in the in the making of stuff. I was interested in theory, in art, uh, in, in kind of the broader culture. And I guess the closest I could come to a synthesis of all those things was architecture. So it sort of fell it fell into place. That type of story comes up on the podcast a lot, and it's very much my story also, where I was a, a kid who who loved reading, loved writing i like watched a lot of movies i liked making things i took all of the art classes and then when i discovered 
design and specifically graphic design, that suddenly seemed like a thing that connected all of these things. Yeah. That I was interested in. Yeah. Actually, I think the only other option looking back would have been the movies. I never did anything, you know. In the, oh, interesting. Line, but I could imagine that maybe being a set designer or a director or a cinematographer has some of those same characteristics as, as architecture. But, I, you know, I chose this path rather than that. I never had any experience with that. <laughs> so you studied, you studied architecture and the plan at that point was you were going to be an architect. You wanted to make buildings? Was that kind of where your interest was when you were 18, 19 years old? Absolutely. When I was 18, 19, the plan was I was going to be an architect working for a municipal, a local authority, you know, building Mm. social Mm. housing, libraries, uh, swimming pools, community centers. Um, That was the plan. And then by the time I uh, I qualified as an architect, that that job didn't really exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you you do that 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 at that point? So the closest I could come to working, because I was kind of still in my in my political, uh, relatively radical uh, phase, mm. the closest I could come to not working in the capitalist economy was to work for the state as a conservation architect. Oh, okay. I worked for um, uh, what was then called English Heritage, which was the kind of uh, the government organization for historic buildings. Um, and, uh, in fact, I worked in the States for a little while as well in, at the national park service in a similar, um, capacity. And then, um, and then when it came to, when I, when I, when I sort of, uh, professionally, I got all my qualifications and everything done, I, I, uh, I set up my own practice and I worked in conservation on my own. That seemed like a kind of, uh, a, a good way to avoid the worst excesses of, uh, of neoliberalism. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. I know what you mean. Uh, so when you were doing that, and and you're you're kind of working for for these other people, you're you're starting your own practice. How did or did at all writing fit into that? Did those kind of other interests that you had mentioned earlier? Were you finding a way to do that in your practice, or how did that? Because because and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it looks like you kind of worked as a architect for like ten years or so before you made that shift to critic, right? That's a kind of yes and no answer. I, I was always, <laughs> okay. I mean, I suppose that the first thing you have to say is that as an architect, and I think particularly in, in historic preservation, you're always writing. You're always writing reports. Mm. You're always writing kind of proposals. And actually, you know, you arguably, you write more than you design. Uh, throughout oh, interesting. As an architect. And I think it's one, of the, it's one of the things that's not well uh, covered in the education of an architect, I think the the, the writing aspect is is broadly um, uh, underplayed. Mm. But at the, mm-hmm. you know, I was also doing a much more formal kind of writing. So I was I was writing books in the you know when I was still quite young. Um, I was editing a, a magazine on uh, historic oh, okay. architecture. And writing a few bits and pieces for um, uh, magazines and stuff, and then I, I also worked in um, in Budapest in Hungary. I'm, I'm half Hungarian. My mother was Hungarian. Oh, okay. And, uh, I worked there, intending to go as an architect, but actually, I ended up as a journalist working for the radio. Can Can you talk about that kind of um, that kind of hybridity of your early career, where you are? A practicing architect, but then you were making books, you were writing, you were kind of doing these other things. How did those fit together? Did it seem like, I don't mean to project 
onto onto you or onto to your career but did it seem like architecture was the day job writing was you know writing these books was what you did nights and weekends how did those all fit together at that time i would like to tell you that it was a very carefully planned strategy and that <laughs> transitioning from architecture through to uh, uh, journalism and using you know one to springboard to another and uh, practicing by day and uh, writing by night but actually what happens is i was a pretty unsuccessful uh architect in private life. I never really <laughs> okay. had much of a career at it. And I have a pretty short attention span as well, actually. <laughs> and, mm. and I mm-hmm. found that the the writing, you know, where you, you write something, it takes you a day to research and, 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 and another day to write, perhaps, you know, I found that in a way, compared to a building, which takes you six or seven years to, to right. And particularly to a uh, maybe a preservation project like some of the churches I was working on. It was just a breeze. I found the writing so kind of refreshing. So I found that the the writing kind of refreshed my architecture. It gave me the energy to carry on with the slog of uh, of building. Mm. Oh, interesting. I mean, I I, I think we're very similar, <laughs> to be honest. Where I also think that I have a, a very short attention span and. Um, you know, kind of get bored with projects fairly quickly. I just talked to someone the other day about, I love the beginning of a project, but by the time it gets to the detail work, I'm ready to kind of move on. Um, And for me, and the reason I asked about kind of how they fit together is that when I was working for other people as a designer, I would then go home and basically try to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And it took me a really long time to see how those two sides, those two interests could come together or how they might be able to influence each other. And I guess, I guess I'm kind of curious if, if you felt, you know, not just did it make the, the architecture work easier, but did it also, were they influencing each other? Were the, the work you were doing kind of influencing the type of writing that you were doing or was writing then kind of influencing how you thought about the architecture work? Mm, I think, Writing for me has always been a, a form of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, I have quite a short attention span. So if I'm if I'm actually forced to write about something, then I'm also forced to think about it. Um, mm. and, and writing is the medium that allows me a kind of an extended thinking period about it, rather than just a kind of a, a flashing uh, Twitter thought. Right. So I think that the you know to that extent, writing was always. Uh, a, a part of my practice it was only that later I realized that actually writing was you know my practice to use a you know an art term which is a bit precious yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I realized actually that the medium of, of writing you know was much more sympathetic to me than the medium of architecture and I, I absolutely love architecture mm. and I think my um, slog through architecture training and then working as an architect has made me a lot less cynical you know I'm able to, mm. to see something that is built and that is excellent and i really not only enjoy the building but i have terrific admiration for all the people who who made it who designed it facilitated it you know paid it and built built it i think um it's it strips a layer of cynicism away i think if you're if you're just a critic arriving maybe without that background you can be a bit more uh, i don't want to i don't want to say superficial because i don't want to dismiss uh, critics who are not architects mm-hmm. but i think there's a um, there's a level of respect or admiration which comes from actually having done it, which which helps not just in not just in the knowledge, but helps you 
um, with a kind of empathy. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean, where, where you have this understanding of the process in a way that, you know, if you don't, if you didn't study that, you do just see that kind of building at the end. Yeah. And I think there's no reason that, that, that there's no reason that that makes you, that the way I did it makes you a better critic. I'm not saying that at all. Right. I think it just gives you a kind of diff- a slightly different angle, which is maybe a little more um, forgiving in a way. Almost. You know, you had mentioned that it, it, it was only later that you realized that writing was your practice mm. or writing was your way maybe to kind of stay in this world that you loved, uh, but from a different perspective. How did you, how did you arrive at that? Or where, when did you kind of realize that maybe writing was your thing? Well, I think slowly. So I was still practicing, even even when I started writing for the um, the Financial mm-hmm. Times. I think I was still I still had the kind of tail end of my uh, my practice left. Um, mm. So um, it really it was a case of the writing being an easier way of making money, and the architecture kind of right. fading away. So what happened was I just noticed that most of my income was coming from from, um, from writing, and most of my Oh, interesting. Architecture. <laughs> so it was a kind of right. decision to see where, you know, which way my life was going. <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting because that is not what you normally hear. You normally hear that there's <laughs> there's no money in the writing side. Exactly. And I think when you when you find yourself earning more writing uh, than doing anything, then you know you're you're an absolute failure at anything else. Because <laughs> 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 writing is extremely bad for failures, you know, as we all know. So uh, yeah. So yeah. It, you know, but but maybe on, having said that, I think twenty uh, years ago when I started seriously writing professionally, uh, maybe it was a bit easier to make a living than it is now. Now there are, right. you know, the, the, the pay hasn't gone up effectively in the twenty years I've been doing it, and there's a lot more competition and uh, a lot of uh, free stuff out there. So it's a, it's it's quite um, it's a difficult time to be doing it now. Yeah, and I want to I want to talk more about that, but I have one other question just to kind of finish this thread sure. for a second. So you you take this job as the architecture and design critic for the Financial Times. How did that? I, I, I guess I kind of have two questions around that. I'm kind of curious how that happened. Was that something that you were again kind of uh, consciously interested in moving your work in that direction? And then also the kind of sub question is was or is the writing for the Financial Times different than that kind of writing that you were doing in your early career that that maybe was a little more connected to to your practice and to conservation? Yeah, you obviously you know before that I was I uh, was writing a much more specialist kind of writing, right? And the architectural right. journalism was a lot more specialist. It was aimed at architects and predominantly at people in preservation. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was interesting. But I think I always had a desire to communicate to a broader audience. Um, oh, okay. And, you know, the, the FT was, was that. Um, so it, you know, it, it's as simple, it's as simple as that. I, I think I, I always wanted to communicate to, um, uh, not especially, not a specialist audience because I think architects have mm. their own. So architecture is not necessarily short of critics and architects themselves can write very well and critic, you know, criticize very well. But I think, the, the place for for a critic is in the broader culture promoting architecture in a way right I think one of the problems that the um, the newspapers face is a kind of marginalization of design I think 
Mm. Architecture is is relatively lucky that it's it's seen as a part of culture, and a big new museum opening or an opera house opening is given a kind of a, a decent slot, and it's something that seemed to be interesting to a broad audience. But I think all of the newspapers struggle when it comes to design. Um, it somehow gets <laughs> stuck between the style section um, and real estate and, and kind of right. culture and the sort of commercial end of, you know, what's, what kind of new chairs came out of Milan this year uh, and even the sort of fashion maybe pages. And I think that right. the part, you know, part of the reason I did reading design was to create a forum where design, all of design from the kind of most marginal uh, practices could be brought together. Um, but I think in the, in the newspapers, it's something that hasn't quite been resolved. There aren't really design critics. Uh, there are culture critics and right. there aren't really design critics. And I'm not suggesting that there ever was a golden age where this was done absolutely right, you know, whether it was the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. Mm-hmm. But I think there might have been a moment in the 80s when, you know, when kind of there, there was an idea that fashion and music and album covers and uh, graphics and, uh, and architecture and restaurant design and chairs were all kind of part of a continuum. And there was a sort of, uh, right. there were popular critics um, writing, you know, seriously about this, um, about this stuff, but in a way all together, along with music and, um, you know, broader popular culture film. And I think that's slightly lacking now. I think now maybe culture is, is still a little uh, segmented, I think curiously segmented. I'm not sure why that is whether it's you know whether it's the editors whether it's the formats so i think I, you know that's my little gripe can can you talk more about that actually because that's something that i'm really you touched on a, a couple things that i'm really interested in I, i'm especially interested in in the people and i think you're one of these people who can write about a specialized field for a general audience mm-hmm. Uh, who maybe don't know anything about that thing, but then somebody who is involved in that field or profession can also read it and get something out of it. There's this kind of writing for multiple kind of levels of knowledge. How do you how do you kind of think about that? Or is that something you're conscious of, of writing, knowing who the Financial Times readers are, but also knowing that probably architects are going to be reading this? Yeah, yeah. It's It's a little tricky. But I think I've I've kind of metabolized it to the extent now that I don't particularly think about it. And actually, the problem for me is the other way around. The problem now for me is writing for an architecture journal uh, <laughs> where I have to write yeah. for a specialist audience and not necessarily explain everything. Um, so, you know, which isn't quite an answer to your question. But I think the um, uh, the, the, the question you ask is is interesting and valid because um, everyone actually understands an awful lot more about architecture than they think. They just may not know the mm. names and the terms, but obviously we all live amidst and around buildings and in buildings. And actually, you know, if you're writing for uh, the Financial Times or the New York Times or the LA Times or, you know, whoever it might be, the big the big international newspapers, then the people who are reading uh, the culture pages also go to galleries, they go to the opera, they travel mm. widely. 
So you're mm-hmm. not starting from zero, actually. Speaking of of audience, and and how you were kind of talking about how you always thought the critics' position was for that more general audience, I'm I'm curious how what you see as your position between architects, developers, city planners, and that audience. Are you, do you see yourself as a, you mentioned the word that you're kind of wanting to promote these things. Do you see yourself as someone who is uh, kind of interrogating or critiquing them? Are you explaining things? What What's that kind of relationship like between this triangulation between the profession the audience and you as the critic. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you, you raised my use of the word promote, which was I, it was it was the wrong word. You're absolutely right. But oh, it makes okay. you sound like a kind of uh, like a PR shill or something. Uh, right. I mean, I knew which, I knew that's not what you meant, which is kind of why I wanted to come back to it. I think probably the word is to is is communicate, but also mm. to uh, make people aware and to raise uh, what you see as the issues around. Um, so I think sometimes, ironically, it's not the architecture that's the most interesting thing. It's the forces and the conditions that have led to the uh, to led to that particular piece of architecture being built. Um, right. And I think that's where criticism can be more interesting in a way because if you simply critique a building, um, you know, with very little context. You're, you're mm-hmm. actually confining um, the people who are going to read it. They're only the people who are really in, either involved in that building in some way, or living in that city, or you know, have are thinking of going. Um, what mm-hmm. you need to do is to is to tell a story of how that building came to be. You know why it's interesting. One of the things that I think you know my editors always used to used to say is why why should I be interested in this. Right, and it's a very simple and very uh, clear message. You know what what is what is interesting here, and sometimes the building may not be interesting, but the conditions that led to the building may be absolutely fascinating, or the kind of particular uh, set of circumstances around the con- around the construction or the design. Maybe it's symbolic of a broader uh, uh, trend or a broader lack right. of some kind of thinking. So I think there's always a the the key is always to to pick something up around a building that makes it interesting to uh, a broader audience than than the people who are just interested in the specifics of that one building. Right. Yeah. I mean, we were before we started recording, we were talking about Hudson Yards, which yeah. um, probably by the time this episode comes out, you will have already <laughs> written about. Yeah. Um, but what I found so interesting about those reviews or those those essays around Hudson Yards is how little writing there actually is about what these buildings actually are. Yeah. The interesting thing with with that is everything around yeah. it. And I'm kind of curious what your process yeah. I guess is kind of like like how do you think about that? Are you kind of going to visit these and are you looking for what is the bigger thing here? Do you go in with some ideas already? What's that kind of like as you're starting to frame a, an essay or, or a review? You, I, th- I suppose you, you, if you're going, if you're traveling to see a building, it's already hooked your, your interest in some way. 
mm, you already right. have the the conditions laid down for for some uh, uh, kind of broader story. But but then you you go there, you discover what you can, you see whether it works in the way uh, it should or in the way you thought it would. Um, you you try and understand whether it's adding something to the culture of architecture or the culture of that particular place. Um, mm. You you try and understand whether it's it's something that might be transferable in some way. Is is this is what you're seeing something that might have uh, tips or um, uh, uses you know beyond that particular place? Is this is this something that's very particular to that one corner of that one city, right. or actually is this something that we should all be looking at and seeing how they've done it, uh, and either you know trying to emulate it in some way or doing the exact opposite. <laughs> right right <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, how ha- it's vague you know it, i i can't honestly say that i you know i have a kind of plan that i go to to see a building right i have a way a, 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 there's no kind of one way i do it um okay you know i go i honestly to, it's quite in a way it can be quite superficial you go you walk around it you talk to the architects you talk to some people you um, you 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 try and kind of come back at night. You see you see whether the place is is buzzing or not, or you know you see what the context is, what it might do to the context. Um, yeah. But in a way, you know, there's also a kind of superficiality that that comes hand in hand with that. If you're a, a critic visiting a thing uh, once, uh, right. writing about it before often it's even opened, you know, I'm also aware that there are that there are issues, you know, around that, that you, you end up writing about the object rather than the, uh, uh, rather than the effect. Do you ever go, this is probably a weird question. Um, do you ever go and visit a building and you kind of, you know, kind of have some, a plan, you have a story you want to tell. And then as you're writing, you, you go back, you know, to your desk or whatever, and you start writing and you realize get, I'm, I'm kind of coming back to what you're saying about, uh, writing being a form of thinking for you as you're writing you realize like oh this is actually about this other thing that i completely didn't see when i was at the site yeah absolutely yeah absolutely i think it's when you exactly i think you're absolutely right it's quite often that i'm sitting in a hotel room somewhere um and as i start to write i'm thinking how do i you know how do i begin this what's you know what is going to hook the the reader's attention um and as as i'm thinking about how to begin it i think about something else that's in mm-hmm. the same world and i think ah actually there's a you know there's something happening here this is you know this is part of a a, a bigger picture and that's the thing that, that allows you to uh, make it into a story in a way you mentioned earlier about how much writing and even specifically criticism has changed over the course of your career and I I would like to talk more about that. And I'm, I'm especially curious about how uh, not just social media and the kind of rise of Instagram and how there's just this kind of visual culture around design now, how that has changed being a critic, but also just being online, being, you know, having not just these kind of major publications, but the blogs and specialized sites and everybody's kind of writing about design as this kind of buzzword right now. Has that changed your own approach to, to writing or, or to criticism? Um, no, I don't think it, oh. I don't think it's changed my approach. Uh, okay. On the other hand, I do think it's a, it's a good thing. So, you know, the, there, this kind of, 
atomization of the media mm-hmm. um, is is an interesting phenomenon, and people it allows um, everyone to become a lot more engaged in it, and every become a critic and people to emerge as critics who wouldn't have otherwise emerged because there are so few actual jobs in this world you know people you know like me who are um you know paid to do this that um it opens up a whole new kind of constellation of voices you know most of whom are you know probably just uh destined to stay uh, in their bedrooms but you know a few of which are you know do, do become really excellent critics and uh and even if they they never do it for um they never become paid critics just their voices add to the culture of of, of criticism and it's a very mm-hmm. healthy thing um but there has been you know the other side of the same coin i think is the uh the concentration on images Right. which is very compelling and i'm i'm absolutely as uh, enthralled to it as anyone <laughs> um, yeah you know, we all love a, a picture of a, a 1970s uh, yugoslav uh, memorial or whatever it might be. <laughs> right 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 um the, the you know the, at one point it allows you to discover things that you absolutely never would have um you would have seen before you know people posting amazing things from chile and from um, Hong Kong, wherever it might be. Um, but it also encourages a kind of, uh, swiping, you know, cult. Right. Um, and I think, um, the, the, the critic, the, the, in a way, the role of the critic is to re-engage the intelligence, uh, and to make mm. you work a little. And I think sometimes, um, uh, there's an argument that even though, you know, I and a few a few colleagues are working in uh, the non-specialist uh, medium that we need to make people think about architecture and and actually, you know, make make some of the pieces a little chewy, make them a little bit um, difficult occasionally, and, and and challenge people to uh, understand that architecture is an extraordinarily complex uh, confluence of, uh, of influences and conditions, and I think. You know, that's in a way the 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 proliferation of the visual culture of design has is is a good thing, but it needs a counterbalance of a kind of um, broader uh, in, intelligent kind of critique as well to 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 keep it in check. It's something I think about all the time. I teach a couple of design history classes, mm-hmm. uh, specifically graphic design history classes, and I have realized over the years that my students have a much stronger visual knowledge of both design history and design trends because of things like Instagram and Pinterest, where this stuff can kind of go viral. Um, And they pull from all of these things when they're making work. And it's, it's really cool to see. But then on the flip side, I struggle to to think, okay, this is great that you're aware of these styles, of these visuals. Yeah. Um, how do we add context to yeah. that? How do we start to then kind of explain why these things look the way that they do yeah. um, and come from a specific time? And I, I find that balance very interesting and is, has become a kind of recurring theme for me in my own teaching practice of yeah, I want you to like look at all of this stuff, but then we also need to have this kind of time for reflection. You know, well, I remember when I was uh, when I was an architect, 
um, going into a job that I was working on uh, to talk to the client, who was a very wealthy uh, individual, and going in with an interior designer. And I had with me a roll of drawings, uh, you know, which probably represented a couple of thousand hours of work. Um, and, you know, we had a kind of report on the site conditions, on the history of mm-hmm. the site, on the kind of the, the social and political context of the, of the building. And the interior designer came in with a, a mood board, some <laughs> yeah. pieces of fabric, uh, a couple of coat hooks and some photos from, uh, t- t- you know, copied from, I think, World of Interiors. And I later realized the designer was on about twice my rate. <laughs> and I think there has been, you know, there is a mismatch between, uh, uh, you know, one one between these two cultures, and the culture of the mood board is the culture of now. <laughs> right. And I think right. some of our job is to, you know, as I was saying earlier, is to kind of just become a kind of counterweight to uh, to the to this huge proliferation of images. I mean, the statistics on how many images are. Uh, how many pictures have been taken and uploaded every day? It's, it's eye-watering. It's almost unbelievable. I think mean, every week there are yeah. more than in the whole history of 20th century photography. Yeah. So uh, you know, I think there is there is a, we have a responsibility. People like us who write and read and and, uh, and think have a, a responsibility to kind of just tone down um, the the visuals a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and honest, and I don't mean to to make this about me or make this some sort of meta conversation but that i feel like that's kind of part of the goal of this podcast honestly is that these are like long form conversations that hopefully go a little bit deeper than as you were saying earlier just a a tweet thought um and that they're 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 they are a little bit harder to just share or to clip and i think there's something that's actually kind of nice about that yeah absolutely and i think you know i actually say all of that because I think it's a good transition into uh, Reading Design, the site that you you co-founded and edit, because I think that is very much doing what you're talking about, where that is a very quiet, very word-driven site. Um, where can you, I guess for people who don't know what it is, can you kind of describe what Reading Design is and then also where the idea came from and what your goals for it are? Sure. Well, Reading Design is uh, a non-profit, free-to-access online archive of writing on design. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, and and the the idea was to pull together texts, both historic and contemporary, from everything from you know from graphics through architecture, mm-hmm. um, fashion. Uh, product design, industrial design, even you know social uh, design and, uh, and service design, even potentially, and uh, have a, a kind of text database that I felt was was lacking. The, the internet, you know, we're all we all people, you know, my age have a kind of ambivalent relationship with the web, um, where I am absolutely as addicted as anyone else to everything on it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also yeah. slightly wary uh, of its limitations, right. and you know, I'm saying this. I'm, I'm telling you this in a converted garage, in which the walls are double lined with books. You know, I'm completely ensconced. It's like a kind, of, right. like a kind of coffin of text that I'm I'm, I'm talking to you from. Yeah, I love and, that. And um, 
uh, the, the idea behind it really was that I'd talked to some younger people. We'd done some uh, crits and uh, I'd been to some, um, been back to my old uh, uh, university to, to talk to some of the students. And I'd realized that the, the um, that generation who was kind of beginning architecture school and, and moving through it really hadn't read very much. Maybe mm. I hadn't either. But my impression was that we had probably read a bit more because we had fewer distractions in those days. There was, yeah, know, yeah. There, there were there were books and there was TV and music, but there wasn't all the other stuff that you can kind of have on your on your laptop and your phone. So, mm-hmm. I it seemed to me that the internet is this miraculous thing that has endless storage, endless capacity for storage. You know, unlike you know kids today have to move around a lot. It's the, the, the lifestyle is maybe not as stable as it used to used to be. Um, they maybe don't want to be dragging books with them everywhere. And yet there is there right. is this uh, facility on, online to have as much storage as you want. And people use the internet in a particular way. They dip in. They're just looking for something now, and they want to just dip into a text, maybe read for five minutes, whatever it is. And, and, and the um, right. reading design really was that, that you would always have somewhere to go back to to pick out an interesting text on whatever you were thinking about at that moment, whether it was, you know, William Morris or, or Henry Thoreau or, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, Rem Coolhouse and uh, contemporary design, there'd always be something there that would kind of spark your interest that would then link to something else that you wouldn't have otherwise found. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love how you said that and just, just talking about like William Morris versus Rem Coolhouse. And I, I think the, the range of the site is actually really fascinating. Uh, do you have a sort of editorial or curatorial goal or point of view? Like, how do you know, or how do you how do you kind of decide yeah. what goes on the well, site? Well, there's a you know the the um, the the public facing answer to that would be, of course, uh, and it's to, do, it's to do with uh, you know what is interesting and what is still relevant from history, and you know what what bits we might have missed and. Uh, what's the most interesting material available now. And the realistic actual answer is that we've tried to put one thing, one text up a week and there's two of us do. Okay. And I tend to kind of struggle on, you know, I, I tend to bookmark things. I think this would be interesting to come back to. And we, we struggle with getting copyrights, you know, with what, what isn't, right. what isn't with chasing people down. We struggle with length because I don't really want to put, you know, uh, academic book chapters on there because it's too much. Um, so yeah. you're looking, it's actually quite a, the, 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 the reservoir is, can be surprisingly small, but then you have the whole of history and the whole of the world to, to plow through. So we've only just scrapped this. Has working on the site and kind of reading things, thinking that you're going to put them on the site, has that changed your own reading habits or has it even changed your own kind of approach to writing kind of as you're reminding yourself of all of these historical mm. texts and kind of being able to put things in context in a different way. Does it change your work it in any way? It changed my reading and that is was absolutely deliberate. So part of the reason for setting it up was precisely to force me to read more and more text. Um, so mm. I, I thought the worst that can happen is that at least I will have read a load of interesting things. <laughs> right, and, right. You know, I love that. If, if, it's, if it's not a success, and if no one picks it up, well, at least I will have, you know, had some interesting reading. As it happens, I think, you know, it has 
uh, you know, people have found it, you know, relatively interesting. So we kind of, we, we, we uh, carry on. Um, has it changed my own writing? That's quite interesting. I think, I, th- I think no is the answer, but it has certainly uh, made me aware of the way writing has changed. You know, there was, there's a particular moment mm. in the early 20th century where everyone is writing manifestos and, you know, I find absolutely, we have a lot of manifestos on the site and I find it fascinating how um, it seems almost inconceivable now to have the arrogance to say, this is what we should do. Um, you know, we, right. don't, even, we right. don't even presume to know what all the solutions are now. Um, so that, so I think what it's done is to, is to underline how, quite how different history can be from the present moment and occasionally quite how similar the problems that everyone's facing is, you know, whether it's Thoreau or Morris talking about freedom and uh, the value of craft and automation of uh, industry, or whether it's um, the the Russian constructivists writing their manifesto on what should be done. I'm going to ask you a big question, so I apologize (laughs) in advance, but... uh, as we're talking about your reading habits and talking about these texts, I'm curious, who are some of your favorite uh, writers or critics or, or the books um, either that, you, that you've kind of read for the site or just in general who have kind of really influenced how you think about architecture and your work as a right, critic? Right, the, That's quite easy to answer, I think. The, okay. The, 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 the most influential writer, I think, is uh, Michael Sorkin. And probably oh, my yeah. style is nothing like, uh, you know, I don't have anything in common with his writing. Uh, but he he is and he was the most um, uh, fierce critic of the way things were mm-hmm. in New York. And certainly when I you know, first went there in the um, uh, 80s and 90s, and he manages to do what I think I suggest people should do and don't often do myself, which is to you know, to, to bring in the politics, the, the social conditions, the kind of the popular culture around any issue and absolutely nail the thing. Uh, and he's funny and he's humane and he's warm and he's almost yeah. always right. And I think that's, you know, <laughs> you know right. so I think even though I, I wouldn't necessarily model myself after him because he's a particular kind of voice, um, I think he, uh, you know, he always uh, excited me. I'm always happy to read him. And, I, and, and in a way, then on the other side of the the table, as it were, is is Rem Koolhaas, who I yeah. maybe never agree with, uh, but he's always compelling, always brilliant, always funny. And uh, you know, I think it's, he's one of the, actually actually one of the very few architects who's constantly provocative, constantly interesting. And I think right. he has a probably a quite short attention span too. So he has the thing where he, you know, he does a <laughs> yeah. building, but you get the sense that he's kind of bored of the building before he's done it, and he's already curating the next exhibition or writing the next book, and he's, you know, he's seeing where the next thing is happening. And he's, like he may well be wrong; yeah. the next thing may not be happening where he is, but he is always already in the next place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. And and Rem has been someone who was very influential on my mm. thinking around being a practitioner and a yeah. writer and how those can fit together. And I think he's been been 
uh, is kind of the model of that. I actually recently talked to Rainier DeGraff for the podcast, uh, and we kind of talked about that because I think he's the same same way. Um, and not to bring up another interview, but I also recently talked to Oliver yeah. Wainwright, um, and he mentioned REM, and he mentioned, which I think might prove what you were just saying, that when he went to visit, uh, he toured the um, uh, one of the Prada yeah. buildings and with mm-hmm. REM. And Rem like kind of took him to one section. And was like, I think this is basically all you really need to see. Kind of like he was done with it, kind of yeah. bored with it already. So you might be onto something. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. My last question is: I'm kind of curious about what you're thinking about right now. What are the things you're interested in that you want to write more about? That's uh, that's that's on your mind yeah. at the moment. Well, I, I suppose there are two answers. The the first is that after writing you know for a newspaper for 20 years about it, it, the same thing you begin to get a little <laughs> restless and you begin to look at are there whether there might be other ways of writing about architecture than the building critique mm. and you occasionally mm. get opportunities to do it but not that often actually um and you know i think that the you you in the newspapers you can get caught in a kind of twelve hundred word thousand one twelve hundred word box, which can be right. quite difficult to escape right. from. You know, I was I, I was lucky recently. I had a, a an opportunity to write a long piece about Milton Keynes, which is a, a British town. Oh yeah, sixties um, and seventies, and um, uh, you know, it's 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 broadly a huge success, but it has its failures as well. And I was able to really. You know, write a long magazine piece, which wasn't, which was kind of obliquely about the architecture. So I guess, in a way, mm-hmm. you, you know, you look for other ways of writing about architecture, whether it's fiction, uh, short stories, uh, whether it's a longer social mm-hmm. analysis. Um, so that's the answer to the first part. Then I think you had a second part to the same question. Oh yeah, what am I? Yeah, what am I? Inter- I there, there are a few things I'm interested in at the moment. I, I think one is. Uh, I, I had a kind of uh, a moment of clarity. I, I had a, a, a couple of trips. I was in uh, the Gulf. I think I was in uh, Doha and then mm-hmm. Dubai. And then I was in Texas and Houston. And okay. so I had this kind of these few days where I wasn't really able to walk anywhere. I was just going in Ubers and uh, I was going from one kind of air conditioned hotel lobby to another. And Mm-hmm. And I realized that actually we're all doomed <laughs> and that the, the idea that we're ever going to reduce our consumption, our energy consumption is just completely fantastic. It's not, it's never going to happen clearly. So we are mm-hmm. going to have to plan for doomsday. And, uh, you know, I think that's the kind of uh, the, the, the thing that interests me now is, is really, I know this is terribly controversial, but the kind of the t- the, the tinkering around the edges of sustainability um, mm. is is I think problematic at this point. You know, there needs to be a huge political solution, or we need to kind of plan for a kind of post-apocalyptic <laughs> scenario. Right. That's interesting right. now, and I and I think the kind of flip side of that is I'm I have never in my life been interested in the countryside. I'm completely urban. I'm only interested. In fact, I feel mm. quite kind of jumpy in in rural uh, locations where I, I, you know, I can't get a, a decent espresso or a 
continue <laughs> life walking by. And I, I find myself getting a little more interested in trees and birds and Mm. I can't quite explain that. I think it must be age. I'm kind of, I look out at the squirrels and the tree from my, you know, from my dining table and it makes me very happy. And I think I'm, I'm reading about trees and about evolution in cities and about how animals are adapting to life in cities, which is really absolutely fascinating. I have no idea whether this is something I'm going to be able to write about or not, but it's, it's certainly kind of uh, refreshing my imagination. In a way, it's the antidote to the kind of doomsday scenario. <laughs> Again, I think we're kind of similar in that regard in that I have always been a city person. I grew up in the suburbs, but my entire adult life has been in kind of major urban cities. And over the last year or so, I've <laughs> felt a certain romance for the country that I had never uh, never felt before. And may- I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe that's the influence of REM again, actually. Oh, I'm not of course, sure. yeah. REM in the countryside. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Of course, I right. actually hadn't made that connection, but you're um, yeah, you're absolutely right. He is like I said, wherever you go, he is already there. <laughs> right, right, right. I love it. Uh, that 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 also allows us to end this not on a completely doomsday note, where I thought this was going to end for a second. Edwin, thank you so much. This was such an interesting conversation for me. I'm a big oh, fan. Thanks, thanks, um, thanks. And so, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. This episode was recorded on March 20th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Porgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.